Welcome to the podcast, Whiskey and a Map. Stories of adventure and expeditions as told by those who live them. I'm your host, Michael Reinhardt. It has been said that many adventures and expeditions start simply with a map and a glass of whiskey. A desire to go and see the world's wild places. You're invited to pull up a chair, pour yourself a glass of your favorite whiskey, and join us as we hear stories from another one of our friends just returned from the field. Welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today is Tim Cahill. Tim is a writer, he's an explorer, and he's very good at both. His adventures have taken him in search of pre-Inca fortresses, going deep underground mapping newly discovered caverns, and to the Sahara in search of the infamous salt mines of Mali, and that's to name only a few. Tim began his writing career with Rolling Stone magazine, A love of the outdoors and adventure led him to becoming one of the founders of Outside Magazine, pioneering adventure and travel writing. He is the author of nine books, one of which, entitled Jaguars Ripped My Flesh, National Geographic named as one of the 100 best adventure travel books ever written. Tim has been on many expeditions throughout his life, and in this episode, he shares some of them with us. I'd like to introduce you to a friend of mine, Tim Cahill. Pardon me, Tim, if I uh, say this, but Tim, you're a legend in in the adventure community and the travel writing community. Uh, So I've been really looking forward to doing this interview with you. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You started your career, actually, I believe in San Francisco with the Rolling Stone magazine. How'd that come about? Well, I went to San Francisco, and uh, actually, I'd been at law school at the University of Wisconsin for one semester and uh, did very well and realized if that stuff kept up, I was going to be a lawyer. And I had a dream of being a writer. So I left for San Francisco, which shows what I knew. I mean, if a person wanted to be a writer, you would go to New York. That's the center of the publishing industry. But uh, San Francisco in 1967 seemed like the place to go. And uh, so I went there and had all manner of jobs that one sees on the bio of a first novel. I mean, I was a longshoreman, a a, a warehouseman, a landscaper, and did that for a couple of years and managed to, I I kept submitting things to Rolling Stone and was eventually hired. Now, part of your work with Rolling Stone uh, if I understand it correctly, you got to interview celebrities. Well, yeah, later on. Yes. And I saw that you mentioned that it was really interesting hanging around with Jack Nicholson. Can yeah. you tell us about that? Well, um, yeah, I believe uh, I had a, an assignment. In those days, you could you could uh, be on the set of a movie. If if you talked your way into it properly, you could be on the set and watch what they did and how they filmed and talk to the uh, interview subject in their trailer during the um, uh, during the breaks and filming, which are, you know, multitudinous. I was hanging out with on the set of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Jack was there and uh, we talked. And then later on to finish the the profile that I did for him for Rolling Stone. Uh, we went to Aspen. We skied a lot. We watched basketball. Uh, we got into Jack's private plane and uh, 
flew to Los Angeles and sat in the front row of the Lakers game. That was pretty much fun. And it's basically what it's basically what I would have done at home, only at a somewhat higher level. And uh, Jack was fun to hang around with. It, it, it was like, like it, was it legal to have this much fun? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, and it, it, it wasn't. Uh, yes, we went out to dinner, and yes, there would be um, other, maybe another movie star or two that was uh, Jack's friend. Uh, but you know, it was. It was just like you and I going out for dinner and uh, having fun. Well, of course, I, I was a journalist, but there wasn't all manner of orgies and drugs and stuff like that. Still, oh, pretty cool experience. Yeah, it was. In time, you made your way to becoming yourself quite accomplished adventurer, going on expeditions and writing about them. And if I understand correctly... You've always been interested in, I believe you put it, you've been interested in the mechanics of risk and fear. Yeah. Is that what, is that what led you to this life? No, no. I, when I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin, I was involved mostly in uh, athletics and I was never kind of an outdoor guy. I always wanted to be, but my, my days, my recreational time was filled up with the various sports that I played. But when I got to California, I started going outside quite a bit, hiking trails. And, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, but I loved, I loved doing that. In doing that, occasionally there was a risk to be taken, a wall to be climbed or boulders to be climbed or a rushing river to cross or things like that. And I found that I enjoyed doing those. I enjoyed a challenge. And I kind of... Uh, in my career, I did a bunch of things, jumped out of airplanes uh, for no particularly good reason. Um, I uh, crawled around in deep, dark caves uh, where it's easy to get lost. I did cave diving, which is a very, very dangerous sport. I once uh, threw a rope off of El Cap in Yosemite, a half a mile drop, and uh, climbed up that rope and slid down that rope. Now, I didn't do it personally. I mean, I, I mean, I, I did it personally, but I did it with a crew, a group of friends that did it. I believe that's the second longest propel that had ever been made uh, at that time. And believe me, when you're standing on top of a cliff and you've got a half mile drop and you've got a rappel rack here, the only thing that's holding you, um, there's an element of fear in there. On the other hand, I'd practiced this. I'd done it many, many, many times. And uh, it was the same thing that I'd always done, just a little bit longer. So that that fear, I wondered whether the fear had anything to do with uh, helping you do it. And did the fear feel the same way as, oh, when you stand up in front of a crowd and you're going to have to do public speaking, you have some butterflies. And I've done a bunch of public speaking. And I thought, you know, if you don't have little butterflies at first, you're not going to be that good. So I, I, I began to look into that potent chemical cocktail that risk provides you, uh, adrenaline, noradrenaline, how that somehow makes you feel alive. Some people say, well, when you do your first skydive or two, the, when you land, that, that burst of relief and euphoria 
it feels so good that is that why people do it or do people enjoy the just the risk cocktail uh, biochemical cocktail with the risk brews for you is that what they enjoy and i think i think i enjoyed being a little bit afraid now you know something's risky and you're going to do it but this always presupposes that you've practiced and know a little bit about what you're doing. If you don't, if you don't know what you're doing, that chemical cocktail can easily transfer into panic. What you want is sheer competence, not not thinking per se, not thinking like brooding on something. You want it to feel almost creatural. I think I enjoyed that feeling, and I sought it out. Uh, certainly, in my younger life, I, I, I'm risk averse these days. But in those days, I did. I, I, you know, the Scottish have a, a have a phrase. They say some men are born two drinks under par, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think the same goes for uh, for risk taking. I mean, why do some people uh, seek it out and some people don't? Maybe those of us that do were born a couple of uh, uh, biochemical cocktails under par. You know, that's that's about the best explanation I've heard, because when people ask me that why question, the best I can come up with is just say I'm brain damaged. <laughs> and then they chuckle and I chuckle and they walk away going, yeah, he probably is brain damaged. But, you know, I really don't know how to explain it, like on propels. It's always, okay, you check, uh, make sure all the protection's in place. You've practiced it. You know what you're, basically what you're doing. But still, when you go over that edge, the heart's pumping and you're a little bit sweaty and you're looking at that 11 millimeter rope that's hanging to the, to the <laughs> face of the cliff. And, uh, you know, you just hope that you checked all your gear three or four times. But once you got over the edge, for me, it seemed that, okay, now we're just enjoying the ride down. Exactly. You never think about it. You never think about it. And if something happens at the time, you deal with it. You, you know, when you, the way we did it at El Cap is we strung the, we walked up the backside, strung the rope over, and then uh, climbed up from the bottom. These, this is really caving technique and uh, cavers are Calvinists. So you got to climb the rope first before you get to repel. Are you just a uh, G Marta? Uh, yeah, but it's a uh, caving stuff. You've got, uh, you've got uh, Gibbs ascenders on, on your feet and various uh, and a Jumar up top and uh, you climb it. It's a half a mile climb. It took six, seven hours. You know, uh, That's a big effort. <laughs> especially uh, when the wind comes up late in the afternoon and you're doing these big 70 foot swings back and forth. It's, uh, it's exciting. And my, my friend photographer, Nick Nichols was climbing above me. There's a, they, there's a, in this, in this gear stuff, there's a, a, a band you wear around your chest with a roller that goes into the rope. His, his roller broke and he was above me at the time because his idea of a photographer is he could shoot down at my face, which is better than shooting my butt against the sky. His rope, and I remember neither of us panicked about it. He just said, all right, well, sat down in his seat harness, 
uh, he rigged a little bit. I climbed up and was able to clip above him and help him tie a few knots to put a, you know, a, a, a kind of knot, knotted roller in there for him. And neither of us panicked on that. It was just, well, that's what we're going to have to do. Yeah, I think NASA has that famous phrase of, you know, when, when it starts going crazy, calm down, work the problem. I, I guess that's what we did, and we didn't know the NASA thing. You know, before we get too far down the road, do you have a good drinking story for us? I once wrote a short column, because that's all I could get out of it, called uh, Drunken Diving for Poison Sea Snakes. There are a group of people in uh, one of the more remote islands of the, well, not a remote island, it's Cebu of uh, the Philippines, but there is an offshore island uninhabited that's kind of a halfway cave and in there are masses and masses of snakes uh sea snakes i forget their names now but all sea snakes are poisonous there's there's no innocuous ones and uh, these men would uh, dive for uh, sea snakes catch them they had heavy rubber bands around one wrist and they this was all on its breath. This wasn't scuba diving. And they would uh, grab the snakes by the head, stick them under the, the band on their wrist, and they'd come up with four or five snakes and dive again. But they felt that if they got bitten by a snake, if they had drunk a good deal of palm wine previously, that would dilute the blood so that the bites were not uh, fatal. That, that's the end of that story. But I just love the title, um, Drunken Diving for Poison Sea Snakes. The wine probably gave him some kind of courage to go down there because I don't know about diving and grabbing a sea snake by hand, but <laughs> apparently it worked. Apparently, yeah, apparently it was palm wine. And uh, of course, I get curious and say, how do they make this palm wine? Well, they uh, they tap a palm tree for its sap which is kind of light and colorless and it's a sugary sap and it ferments. It's mildly alcoholic, about 4%, like a, like a beer, a little bit less than an ordinary beer, four or 5%. And so they would drink quite a bit of this uh, before they left. And they had to because uh, palm wine I've discovered goes bad within 24 hours. So it's vinegar. So you might as well, you know, you, you got it for your job. You're, you're diving for the snakes. So you, you might as well finish it off because it's not going to be any good when you get back. Uh, imagine the job announcement for that. Wanted divers to uh, <laughs> harvest sea snakes. Benefits, all the uh, palm wine you could drink. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Peru, you, you were part of an expedition that searched for and located a lost fortress. Can you tell us about that? Let me be uh, specific here. I did not discover Quilape. It was found by non-local person who documented it in 1843. It's a huge, huge pre-Inca civilization. It's not Inca. It's uh, in the northeastern uh, Peruvian state of Amazonas near a town called Chachapoyas, Chachapoyan people did this fort. And unlike Inca building installations, edifices, Inca stuff is um, generally rectangular, sharp angles. 
everything that the Chachapoyans made was curvilinear. And there's this large fort called Coilape, which when I went to see it, I wrote in my notes, the wall appeared to be 60 feet high and maybe half a mile on either side. It was a huge, huge installation. I think it's the biggest pre-Inca installation in all of the Americas. The, the thing is, when we went up there, nobody like us, basically gringos, went up there. And uh, so they basically assumed that we were huaqueros, uh, uh, grave robbers. Why would we go to a place like this if we weren't? So we had police uh, coming up and uh, they came up when we were in the installation, this huge fort, this overgrown with all kinds of uh, jungle. It, it smelled like faded lilac with an undercurrent of vaguely skunky odor. It was, the, the odor was significant. It was completely overgrown. And we were just looking at it and making little maps to try to figure out how big it was, because uh, it, it was just amazing. The person who found it in the 1840s, after that, had it been researched at all? or No, that's the amazing part. Uh, it had not. Now, here's the amazing part. In preparation for this, I looked it up to see, had anything been done? Yes, indeed. It is now a, a tourist attraction. Um, there is, I don't mean to, they, they've done a really good job in clearing out some of it. They put a even a chairlift on the backside to uh, take people up there. And because now they realize that people want to come see it, not to rob graves and maybe obtain gold. They want to see it for historical and cultural reasons. But in the day, I looked uh, 47 years ago now, we were uh, interviewed by the Peruvian investigative police. Why the hell were we taking notes? Why were we, uh, um, why were we making little maps? We were definitely going to steal stuff, weren't we? Uh, now, they realize that people will actually come there to do what exactly what we were doing, to get the cultural and uh, historic uh, archaeological the benefits of it. In that expedition, what was the start? What led you to seek out this fortress? There's a book by the son of a Spanish conquistador and an Inca princess. It's called Royal Commentaries of the Incas by Garcilaso de la Vega. Garcilaso, it's said that the Incas did not have a written language. The court historians had colored ropes with various knots on them, which were mnemonic, and they, they would remember this story and that story and that story. I've since read some archaeologists believe that that was a matter, a method of writing and not merely mnemonic. I, I can't comment on that. Uh, but in reading the royal commentaries of the Incas in preparing to go there, we saw that the Incas, it would have been 1480s, just previous, 50 years previous to the Incas conquering the Chachapoyans, and Garcilaso wrote a few pages about it, and he he located several of these forts, you know, behind this this outcropping there, and uh, 
So we used Garcilaso de la Vega, and then we also did the uh, precisely what Hiram Bigham did in 1911. Hiram Bigham is a guy who discovered discovered Machu Picchu. How did he discover it? His crew was uh, marching out to find the city of El Dorado, the city of gold. And too early on in the trip, he thought, before he got to where he was really going to search, he asked local people, well, are there any ruins around here? Oh, yeah, there's people growing potatoes up in some ruins up there. That was Machu Picchu. That's how he discovered Machu Picchu. We did basically the same thing. Where was uh, Puelap? We found it. And then we set out from there across the Utcabama River, across the high plain, the Puna, to the Marignon River, where we discovered many, 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 many ruins. Um, we, we discover, I say we discovered, we asked the people, where are the ruins? And they took us to them. As far as I know, they weren't in any archaeological record at that particular time. What did it feel like to, at least as an outsider, to walk upon something that, unless you were a local, to see something that magnificent just out there in the jungle? It was a, it was a thrilling sort of thing. You, you, you had a, a, just a feeling of what human beings could do, the beauty that they could uh, manufacture that was, it must have been in total harmony with this area. Um, when I say jungle, what I'm talking about is the cloud forest. It's the foothills of the Andes, about 10, 12,000 feet. So it's only, you've got the Pacific Ocean, then you've got this area, the Atacama Desert, the uh, driest desert on Earth, and then it rises into the Andes. And just at the foothills of this rise into the Andes is this area of cloud forest called the Ceja de Selva, the, the eyebrow of the jungle. And that's where this was. So, it, And also, it was, oh, I don't know. I, Michael, I, it, feels, it, it felt to me like almost a boy's comic book, you know, to discover this, discover. To, to be able to walk in this, uh, this wonderful area. Any thoughts on how they were able to create those massive stone structures so well? I I have no idea. That that was not something I thought about. I thought about it a great deal uh, more when I was in the uh, when I was in Egypt along the Nile and uh, tried to figure out how they did that. I, I recall coming home from Egypt and was uh, kind of questioned as I came into the United States by. Uh, customs officers. And I said that I'd been there and uh, he said, ah, well, you know, it's, it's clear that uh, they were helped by people from outer space that came down and built these because uh, people 3000 years ago could not have built the pyramids. And I said, yes, sir, I think you're probably right. Well, meanwhile, I, because I wanted to get through customs, but meanwhile, I'm thinking, you dope. You know, they, you, they, they they did it with all kinds. They used something called leverage. Yeah, it's it's remarkable. The skill and the engineering science that they had, these uh, civilizations had developed to move those massive stones, set them so finely together. 
And what was interesting about this uh, particular expedition in Peru is that as we crossed, going south, the, the Incas had come up from the south to conquer them. And uh, as we went south, we were seeing all these curvilinear buildings. People lived in circular huts, circle habs, we called them. And at one point, as we got towards the Marignon River, the circle huts gave way to square huts. And that was, this is obviously where the, the Incas, in their, in their quest to conquer them, uh, this is where they stopped when Pizarro got to uh, Peru in 1532. Uh, you could, and it rather thrilled me that the history that I'd always read had come alive right there on the banks of the Marignon River. What is the strangest thing you've ever seen in all your travels? I've seen a lot of strange things, but uh, I can I can give you a quick story. In the uh, in the central plateau of the Sahel, the area of the Sahara Desert, uh, there are some cliffs, uh, and there the Dogon people live. And there, the people have masking ceremonies. They wear their masks. They do dances, uh, sacred dances for mourning a death, um, for agricultural purposes before the uh, rainy season, for a boy to make the transition into manhood. These are serious ceremonies, and they do ceremonies for tourists for a fee. And they also, uh, and their masks are uh, carved from wood, and they're in museums all over the earth because they're, they're fine workmanship, kind of almost spooky to me, these, these masks. You know? And when they do these things for tourists, they also, they also make masks and they sell them. Now, I was traveling with my friend Chris Rainier, who is uh, who has written a photographer who has done several photography books on masks. Um, and, and the one I would suggest to you is a 2019 book by Chris Rainier called Mask. Beautiful masks. Uh, but he lives with these people, and he believes there's a touch of sacredness to their mask. Me, I'm I don't think in those terms of sacred, but we had a thing happen. Chris was talking to these people. He was going to come back later. He was just making his initial contacts. But he said, may I see your masks? Now, we'd talked to them for a while, and there was some rapport going on. Well, yeah, sure. They put out the masks for the, um, for the tourists, and uh, Chris wanted to see the consecrated mask, the sacred masks. And he was, he spoke with enough knowledge and passion about it that they actually did bring out the masks. And uh, we were with another Dogon expert, Alberto Nicelli, and uh, they both were able to pick out the consecrated masks. I don't know, they looked the same to me. How did you guys do that? Because we weren't selling them. We just, they just said that those are the consecrated ones. And the people agreed that they were indeed. Uh, it wasn't a money transfer thing. It was they got the mask. And I said, how, how do you do that? And he says, it's, you look at them, and it's like the difference between if you see a picture of a man 
and he's lying down and just a picture of his face and he's alive. And then another picture, same pose and he's dead. You can see, you can see that one picture is living and one picture is dead. Well, we went to many other Dogon villages and did the same thing. And I looked very hard at those masks. And you know how sometimes you can look at something and, uh, and if you stare at it with enough concentration, it kind of goes out of focus for a moment. And then it comes slowly back in. And that happened to me. Except in that moment where the focus came back in, the mask was alive. And it sent a shudder up my back and goose flesh on my arms. It was like, and then it was gone. But for that brief moment, I saw what Chris sees all the time, the living, consecrated mask. Speaking of Africa, you took a trip, an adventure expedition to find the salt mines in Mali. Yeah. Can you tell us about that? Uh, the same guy, Alberto Nicelli, an Italian, would buy cars uh, in his youth in the 60s, would buy cars in Italy, get them across the Mediterranean and drive them through the Sahara Desert on the Trans-Saharan Highway down to Burkina Faso or Togo and uh, sell them. And he'd been hearing rumors of the Tuadeni salt mines. In the 60s and early 70s, they were, in fact, a penal colony. You had, you were, especially if you were um, treasonous to the Malian government, uh, you got to work in the Sahara in the salt mines. Uh, and it was, uh, and he'd heard rumors about it. And now it was no longer a prison when we went in the early 2000s. It was, uh, the Malian government was uh, working to eliminate civil rights abuses that they'd been accused of and were doing a job of it. So that, that wasn't there. But we heard vaguely that there were people still working the salt mines. And the question was, we get to the salt mines that Alberto could never, never was able to get to when he was doing the Trans-American Highways because it was forbidden to go to the salt mines. To give you a picture of what salt mines are like, imagine the Great Salt Lake in Utah and imagine that it, over the course of a thousand years or so, it just dried up and the salt sank to the bottom and then a bunch of sand blew over it. That's kind of what the salt mines are, this e enormous uh, plain. So it was a political adventure getting up there because we leave from Timbuktu. I like an expedition that starts in Timbuktu. It left and we could drive some of the way, but there were there had recently been a rebellion with the people who live in that area of the of the Sahara, the Tuareg people, against the ruling Malian party, which is below the below the Niger River. So we had some problems with being chased by Tuareg warlords before we even got to trying to horse these Range Rovers over uh, sand dunes with sand ladders and winches and the like. 
what we did is uh, eventually found the uh, in, in the last village that we could go to. We stopped. We sent out word from the local people to the guys that were chasing us that we wanted to talk to them. And what we said to them was, uh, we would like you to be our bodyguards and we'll pay you. So we got the, the scary guys on our side and uh, got there. Now, 1000 AD, salt was worth a lot. It, it flavored food. It preserved food uh, in an area where, in a time when there was no refrigeration. That was very, very valuable. Salt was traded weight for weight with gold. And it was brought down from this area 500 miles above Timbuktu, down to Timbuktu, and the people from the south would come to Timbuktu. That was a, that's why it was a great trading area. And it was called the Caravan of White Gold. Well, we eventually got to this great plain where people were digging in the sand. You get down about 15 feet, and there's blocks of ill-colored brownish salt. They bring it out in um, in in bricks about uh, two feet by three feet, maybe a foot in depth, this block of salt will weigh about 80 pounds. Salt is dense. And so they built shelters out of salt and then dig deeper into the ground for this very pure white salt. And by golly, there was, we get there and there were probably a thousand camels lined up waiting for these blocks of salt. You put the blocks of salt on the camels and a caravan was 16 to 20 camels. And you could see them taking the salt away from them across these sand dunes that were wind sculptured into these almost sensuous shapes and the sun coming up on the other side of them, glittering off of this salt as they went over the thing. And once again, it was like, living history it was uh, that was the caravan of white gold it was uh, it was an amazing thing to see and one of the great memories of my life they're still mining the salt as it did a thousand years ago nope, hadn't changed in a thousand years and, and we actually figured out how we could get there with a fleet of four land rovers with winches and stuff we figured out the economics of it it was much more economical to use camels it would cost way too much money to uh, try to do because there's no roads really. You were just it was it was a mechanical problem of winching in and out, pushing on sand ladders and all all that. And it when you sit down with a pencil and paper and figure out what it would cost you to bring these up there, as opposed to putting them on camels, um, it's it's way more it, at that time because there was no road there. It was way more economically uh, feasible to do it by camel. What were the Tuareg like? They're often called the blue men of the desert. They were uh, tall, to my eye, ex extremely handsome. They seemed to move over the desert. Uh, they seemed to float rather than to uh, walk over the desert. And uh, I think my Alberto, the, uh, the Italian guide, that was with us, uh, told stories of uh, European women who like to come down to the desert and hook up with the uh, Tuaregs. Um, that's who they are. Let me bring you back to North America. 
And you mentioned this uh, briefly before, but you went on a particular caving expedition. And I believe that was a National Geographic project. Yes. yes. Can you tell us about that? Lechagia Cave, a cave uh, near, near Carlsbad Cave. It was only discovered in the uh, mid-80s. You know, a cave has its own, a big cave has its own air pressure. And uh, so if the air pressure outside sinks and is low, the cave strives to even the air pressure and air will rush out of the cave. You know, the air pressure is high. People that are searching for caves will walk around ridges and stuff and look for dust, sand coming out of the ground. And that's how they found Lechagia. And it turned out to be a huge, immense cave. So there are certain skills that you have to have. It's a 70-foot drop into absolute darkness at the entrance to the cave. So you've got to rappel down that. <laughs> and then hopefully you know how to climb back up when you uh, want to come out. And you go deeper and deeper. And you, since they had just discovered it, they were going very, very slowly through the cave. You'd get to a, you'd get to a room. Uh, you'd go through a bunch of tangled spaghetti caverns that you were crawling and pulling a uh, pulling your gear behind you because it's tied to your foot and getting through there. And you'd see this area and you'd say, does it go? And uh, hopefully you had just someone small and slender who could crunch through there, not someone like me. And uh, if they said it, it goes, then we would go in and get that room. The rule was among the people that went in the cave, and you just, you couldn't just go in this cave. You had to sign up with the park service, and, and you had to have the proper skills to get in, and uh, it wasn't just for anyone. But you would go in with your crew, and then you would map the cave, and the persons, the other persons in your party would go ahead, because this was another privilege. You were the first person on Earth to see this. It's like going to Mars or something. Nobody has ever been here before. And it was extremely bad form and would get you kicked off of the Lechagia thing to go ahead and uh, see these rooms before your team did or before any team did. It's called scooping booty and you could not do it. This was a mapping expedition. Was the process such that each team would would leapfrog from one cavern to another? Exactly. And some of the rooms were more spectacular than you can imagine. They had these great gypsum hanging chandeliers of gypsum that, that in, in, the, in your cave light, they would glitter. And they were huge. They were ballrooms. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was amazing. And, they, and they're still, the cave is going deeper and deeper to this day. And people are still seeing things that no other person on earth has ever seen. How long were you in that cave? I went, I went three times uh, for about a week each time. So you're in there for a week. And of course, you can't leave human waste in the cave. So you have to learn to use baggies in a certain way with the tinfoil and that. And that's in your pack. And that kind of limits the amount of time you can eventually stay in the cave. I understand that you yourself had the privilege of naming one of those rooms. I did. How did that come about? Well, we'd gotten down. It took, takes about, in those days, it, takes about, it took about two or three days to get to the undiscovered part of the cave. 
And people in my group had named some of the rooms. When I came into this one particular room that uh, nobody had seen before, the way these winds in the cave had swept up sand and cave dust and made a kind of a dune that to me looked like an ocean wave. And I said, my God, that looks like an ocean wave. And they said, you just named that room. As forever known as the room of the ocean wave? Yeah, the ocean wave room. How cool is that? <laughs> that was really cool. When you were in that cave, I could imagine you taking a break, just sitting down and looking around at all the marvels that it had to offer, taking it all in. How'd that feel down there? Well, it's a little more contemplative than uh, being on top of a mountain, because when you sit down and turn off your light, it is absolute darkness. I mean, absolute darkness. It's, uh, you think, well, you wave your hand in front of your face. There's nothing. You can't see anything. So it, it lends itself to a certain degree of uh, contemplation in the, in the cave. And it's, at first, it's, uh, it's kind of exciting in that, uh, I, happily, I have never suffered from any kind of claustrophobia or anything like that. And, and it's kind of exciting to be in a, in a place that's sort of inimical to human life, as, as the high mountains can be. But also, you're there and you're comfortable, and there's that some sense of accomplishment. But also, um, after a week of every time you turn the light off, you're in absolute darkness and uh, and silence. You get uh, entrance fever, exit fever. You want to get out of there. You know, if you've been in the mountains, uh, I worked on the. Everest IMAX film, David Brashears. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, I mean, I wasn't climbing. I wasn't climbing. I worked on the film. I wasn't, I worked on the writing of the film. I was Excellent. never a mountaineer that would be, that belonged on the upper slopes of Everest. I was at base camp, but I wasn't on the upper slopes. That but, is... Let me finish. The, the, the idea was um, when David Brashears, who shot the film, I was, I was saying, when we were talking about it ahead of time, I was saying, well, okay, if you miss the shot on the way up, you can get it again on the way down. And he said, no, I can't. There is no way I'm going to stop them after they've summited Everest. They will not stop. That's kind of the way you get the feeling you get in the cave. You just, now you're going, now you're getting out of there. And it's amazing when you come out of the cave because there's, there's no smell of life in the cave. There's, and you come up even in the New Mexican desert and you can, you can smell life all around you and the lights there. And it's like, oh, you know, all your senses get a new appreciation of, of what it indeed what it's like on the surface. Yes. Yes. Isn't it amazing how these um, expeditions, adventures, well, these experiences, how they change you. And, and do you find that when you do that? Yeah, I do. It's, <laughs> I suppose it's commonplace, but it humbles you. The person that you started out on that expedition, you're not the, that same person when you come back. L a little change or a lot, but it always seems to be that way. It does seem to be that way. And I have to talk a little bit about when I read accounts of expeditions, they've gotten better and better and better, more believable. 
but early on in my career, when other people were doing these kinds of things, I often found, yes, they they wanted to talk about that change. But listen, when you get to the summit of a peak that you've been working on a long time and a hard time, you don't say, and then I looked and saw the snow-covered vastness below me, and my heart filled. And I knew then that I could finally forgive my brother for, no, that doesn't happen. Now, you don't have an epiphany on the summit. If if you do have an epiphany on it, it's probably several days later and you're in uh, some dingy hotel room with a a ceiling fan going and uh, no water glass. You're still drinking out of your canteen and uh, maybe maybe you begin to think about it. And what I found myself was because I wrote about it and I took notes, I really didn't know how it had changed me or what I felt until I started writing it down. And then it would come to you. You asked me to describe these feelings and and I was not really able. In writing it down, you begin to discover what it did to you. But for a Uh, One word, I I can't describe it in the feeling. I can describe the writing and how it feels. It feels as if you uh, just pulled something out from the great story arc in the sky and it it filled you up. It's your gift for being able to write about it. For the rest of us, we have that feeling but can't express it so well that uh, I think is really appreciated. Thank you. Your most memorable expedition or adventure, what would that be? Well, the one that I'm proudest of had a, uh, had a result. Um, I went down to Mexico, and it would have been 1976. So we're getting close to 50 years now. And I went down to see uh, what's called the Ariba Zone on the coast of Mexico, south, southwestern coast. The Riba Zone is 100,000 turtles coming up onto the beach to lay their eggs on a moonlit night. Boy, I wanted to go down there and see the weight of all this biology all around me, and, and it didn't happen. And I was there for quite a while when the Riba Zone was supposed to happen. Only a few turtles came up onto the beach. And what was going on was there was a Mexican fisheries industry they were capturing the turtles beyond the breakers before they could come in um, and slaughtering them. This this company, which is named Piosa, they claimed that they weren't slaughtering the turtles out of hand. What they were doing was, um, as they killed the turtles, they were taking the eggs from the eggs from the turtles and they were burying them in the sand just as they would. All although these were in styrofoam beer coolers and they had stacks and stacks on the beach. And they called the uh, they called the press conference, and they had this supposed lab where they had turtles swimming and guys in white coats, and then a slaughterhouse off to the side. But all the things that they were doing to further the turtles. And my Spanish isn't good. There was a big press conference. They had television cameras there, and, and my Spanish was not nearly good enough to be asking questions. So I came back two days later, and there was nobody at the lab. And the styrofoam beer coolers were baking on the beach, and there was nobody there except an old man sitting there. And I said, oh, 
what is uh, what's going on? And he said, well, they just came in here for the television cameras. And uh, I asked about the thing. He said, look, if you want to see the Ariba Zone, go to the dump. Well, if you've ever been, uh, Lord help me, a dump in the tropics uh, full of uh, dead meat is not a whole hell of a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, and I saw the remains of the Ariba Zone in that dump. And I realized that the the press conference had been a dog and pony show and they were going to kill off these uh, these animals that were on the endangered species list at the time. And I wrote an angry story about it, a very angry story about it. And that story got picked up by the Mexican equivalent of 60 Minutes, and then it was in the Mexican newspapers. The uh, man named uh, Antonio Suarez, who was the head of Piosa, eventually got arrested for smuggling this endangered meat into the United States and calling it a different kind of turtle. And over the course of almost 50 years now, that story that I thought was hopeless, that story that I thought I saw the Kemp's olive ridley turtle being slaughtered out of hand, being extirpated from, from the earth, now they are, there's an Ariba zone again. And because the Mexican uh, newspapers picked it up and the Mexican conservation groups uh, got involved in it, it became, it is now a matter of some pride. In Mexico, every year when the turtles come up on the beach, they fly over and to, to see all these turtles uh, laying their eggs. And there's uh, you can go out at night with guides and they'll show you this. Uh, and Mexican Marines patrol the beach so that the eggs aren't poached as they used to be. And the Mexican Navy is out beyond the breakers making sure that they do. It's a now a matter of pride. And. As a journalist, sometimes you you do a story that you think is hopeless, and uh, and fifty years later you can say, "I did all right on that." So, what's next for Tim Cahill? Um, <laughs> not much, not much. I uh, in a year or two I'll be eighty. I am, I am putting together some stories of things that I've done or that happened and. Maybe it'll be a memoir, but I'm I'm not really uh, doing much on assignment anymore. If you're going to write a memoir, I, here's one vote to please do it. <laughs> be great reading. What words of advice would you have for the upcoming generation of adventurers, and particularly of of those who wish to write about them? I can't give any advice on how one goes about being paid for it because uh, that uh, the, the path that I took no longer exists. So I don't know about that. The, the important part about doing any kind of writing, I think, is to find the story. There's always a story there. And I think I've told a bunch of them, but I sometimes see people who are assigned stories uh, for travel magazines um, or online journals where they, uh, where they couldn't find the story. So it's, for instance, they go to Ecuador and it's overwhelming. There's, uh, there's seashore, there's mountains, there's, uh, there's jungles, there's amazing rivers. Uh, there's 
Quito is a glittering city at, uh, on the equator. It's uh, beautiful. But I know right away that the author didn't find the story, a story, if it's got a title like something like the, the author was thinking, well, seashore, mountains, Ecuador, land of contrast. I also have a little trouble with the uh, the people who have the epiphany on the summit of the mountain. I don't think that ever happens. And, you know, the, the epiphany happens later when you think about it. The The other fake kind of story I feel is fake is when a writer who goes to a place and decides that that is very spiritual to them. Oh, it's spiritual, huh? You didn't find the story, did you? How do you find the story? Boy, oh boy. I can just tell you my process, what I do. Is I, take, uh, I, I, I take copious notes. Um, I take it. And, and I, was, um, I was pleased that one of my writing heroes, Peter Matheson, who was a friend of mine, did it pretty much the same way I did it. He would take notes on a reporter's pad, 8 by 11, you know, reporter's notebook. He would take notes there, and then he would have a big spiral notebook. I mean, we were always in places, Peter and I were always in places where there's no electricity, no no computers, nothing like that. You, you, you took it uh, by notes. So I used to, with my expedition pals, I would always, I'm, I'm best in the morning when I'm up. So I would never cook breakfast. They would cook breakfast. I would get up. I would take my reporter's notebook and transfer notes and thoughts into the big spiral notebook. And sometimes these, uh, these thoughts would go word for word, a whole paragraph into a story that I was doing. When I got home, I would give it a day or two to get over jet lag or whatever. And then I'd read my notes over until I had them virtually memorized. And then I would get up in the morning and uh, write the V1. There's always a scene that you want to write. And uh, if you're a writer, you say to yourself, sometimes you say to yourself, well, boy, I've got to write a lead that'll get to this place that I want to write. And I've got to write. Uh, no, write the thing that you want to write first. And that'll tell you whether it wants to be first person, second person. It'll tell you whether what kind of attitude you're going to take to the entire thing. It'll color your whole vision of the story. But how to find the story? The more you think about it, the more it will come to you. And I find that when you're when you sit down to write, the very first part of what I write, and I talking to other writers, I know that this is true for most people. It's crap, and you know it's crap. The first 15 or 20 minutes, it's as my friend Richard Wheeler, a novelist, wrote 70 novels, uh, Westerners. But he said, it's like a rusty old outdoor pump. He said, you start pumping and the water comes out all rusty and discolored. And if you keep pumping, it comes out pure and clean. And that's what you got to do. You got to get by that first 20 minutes. And then everybody's had this experience, even non-writers, I'm absolutely certain of it, in writing a, something for school or something. You have to write it and suddenly you're into it and you don't, you, you, you can feel it. It's, it's, you're not even thinking about 
what you're writing, it's coming to you like from someplace outside of yourself and you pull it in and then it starts to make sense to you. And if you get two or three hours of that kind of writing in a day, you're going to find the story. Now, for folks who want to follow you, do you have any uh, like websites or Facebook no. where they can follow your uh, what no. you're doing? No, no, uh, I don't. Uh, I'm always asked that. And I, I'm just here. Well, for folks who want to learn more about you, I'm going to be linking to your books, other sites, so that they can learn more about you. Please feel free. Uh, any final thoughts? No, but this is a, a fun conversation, and uh, I, it's helping me uh, think about that project we were talking about, the memoir. You got one vote here for yes. Thank you. All right, Tim, this has been a real pleasure for me, and uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with us. This has been fascinating, and uh, hopefully we'll see you down the road. Okay, thank you, Michael. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you down the road when we get together again, share a glass of whiskey, and hear more stories of adventure as told by those who live them. Until then, check us out at michaeljreinhardt.com where you'll find more of my work as an adventure photojournalist. Photos, videos, and articles of interesting people, mysterious places, and exotic cultures from the wild places of the world. <laughs>